Good morning, Valley Bible Church. Good to see you all this morning, and you all look very well and rested, right? After a uh, longer night than normal, I love to fall back, springing forward. I'm not such a fan of. It's like flying east. I don't like flying east. I like flying west. But uh, anyway, um, it's good to have that extra time, and uh, tonight we will all sleep well and wake up tomorrow morning early. All right, we are continuing in John's Gospel. We are in the Resurrection Appearances in Chapter 20, and we will finish out the year of 2021 in the Gospel of John. Thanksgiving is just around the corner, and then Advent is going to be those post-resurrection appearances in Chapter uh, 21. So I ask you that if you have your Bibles to turn with me to John chapter 20, and our text this morning in verse is verses 19 through 23. So if you have your Bible, if you have a tablet or a phone, whatever you have, uh, Bibles are good, paper. I love the leather and paper, but uh, hope you have that. Turn with us to uh, John chapter 20. Before we stand and read the Word of God, I invite you to pray with me, please. Our Lord and our God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. You cover yourself with light as with a cloak, having stretched out the heaven like a tent curtain. You lay the beams of the upper chambers in the waters. You make the clouds your chariot. You walk upon the wings of the wind. You make the winds your messengers, flaming fire your messengers. You have established the earth upon its foundations so that will not totter. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters were standing above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they hurried away. Mountains rose, the valleys sank to the place which you established for them. God, such wonder, such power, such beauty and design and majesty is too great for us. And yet we are grateful that you've called us to worship you as this God who has created us and created all things by the breath of your mouth. By very words, you brought all that is existence from nothing into being. And we were created by your son and for your son. And that's why we are here this morning to worship you. Would you, by the power of your Spirit who created all things, who created us new in Christ, would you now open up to us our minds and our hearts to understand the message you have from us, from the words of Christ, the risen Christ, that we might live for you, that we might be your men and women who stand firm in this world and represent you well. To that end, Lord, we put ourselves to the task, knowing that it is your Spirit who will teach us and lead us and guide us in truth. For all these things we pray in the name of Christ, our great God and our Savior. Amen. All right. Jesus said, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Would you please stand as we read the truth of God's word in our text this morning? John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. Would you please Listen and give attention to the reading of God's word, beginning in verse 19. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side, the disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven. And if you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. And God's people said, Amen. Please be seated. As I said, we are in the portion of John with all of the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. 
And the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus have purpose. Um, Jesus is doing two things, not only in John's gospel, but in the other gospels as well. Number one, he's providing proof of his resurrection. And that is essential, that he has victory over the grave. Because victory over the grave means victory over sin. It means victory over death. It means victory over Satan. Everything is conquered by Christ at at the resurrection. And that is essential because remember Paul gave to us in 1 Corinthians 15, the gospel by which we are saved if we believe. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised from the dead according to the scriptures. And then Paul goes on to explain this. He says, and over the period of, of 40 days, he appeared to as many as 500 people. And that's what Paul uses as the proof of the gospel by which we are saved. Because if he did not rise from the dead, then we are still in our sins. And so these post-resurrection appearances are proving that he has physically died, he was physically buried, and he has physically raised from the dead. The second thing that he is doing is preparing his disciples to continue his mission. And that's what we see in this passage very, very well, both of these things. He is giving them their marching orders. What do they do next? Now that he's alive, now that he's going back into heaven and he's left them on this earth, providing proof, preparing his disciples for the marching orders of the gospel. And we certainly see that in these these verses this morning. So what we're going to see, the first portion of uh, him proving that he has really risen from the dead, we see in verses 19 through 20, the risen Lord dispels fear. He dispels fear because these men were in great fear of their lives on the day that Jesus rose from the dead because just a few days later, earlier, he was murdered. He was crucified. And so the Lord dispels their fear as the risen Lord. Verse 19, so when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. I want you to notice that sentence. Just look at it very closely. I want you to notice the great skill of John in writing this sentence, how in in one sentence he sets the scene of everything that is happening. He tells the day. He tells the time of the day. He tells the people who are involved. He even tells the emotion. Everything is set up in this. And so when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. It's a masterful sentence incredibly well formed and the disciples were there on that day that's very specific that's the the original says that day the first day of the week john is still describing and emphasizing the fact that this is the day of the lord this is the first day of the week this is the day that we worship throughout all of church history and he's he's emphasizing that it is the first day That day that he rose from the dead, the very same day that he appeared to Mary, the very same day that uh, John and and Peter had gone to the tomb and and found it empty and saw the folded up grave clothes, the very same day when other women had come to him, to them, and told them that they were to wait in Galilee for him when the doors were shut. The idea is that they're probably locked. Notice it says doors plural either there were double doors or maybe there were two entrances these men were holed up they were behind locked doors why it tells us why for fear of the jews they feared for their lives and remember just a few days earlier jesus was arrested and he was he was killed they're his followers they they departed they left him alone at the trials and at the crucifixion But they fear that the Jews might be coming for them next. And so that's the setting. 
the, the time, the day, the emotions. The doors are shut. And Jesus comes to them. It doesn't say he opened the door. It doesn't say he knocked on the door. Uh, it doesn't say he walked through the walls. We don't know exactly how he appeared. He just was there. He all of a sudden was standing before them. And this tells us somewhat about the resurrection body of Jesus, doesn't it? The resurrection body of Jesus was, was a, a body that defied the laws of physics, which is by definition a miracle. This was a miraculous appearing. His resurrected body was such that he, he could appear and disappear. He oftentimes hid his presence from people. He could appear uh, behind closed doors in a room, but also at the same time he could be handled, and he was handled. He was touched. He was touched by Mary. The disciples would touch him and probably embrace him at this moment as well, perhaps. And he would eat. He ate broiled fish that day earlier. And later on in chapter 21, we're going to see he's going to sit down with another meal. And he took bread and he broke it in, Act, in Luke 24. So this says much about this, this incredible resurrection body of Jesus that is not yet the glorified body of Jesus. Something else happens when he ascends to heaven and he's not there yet. But at this moment, he appears in the middle of this room, and he says, peace be to you. And of course, um, when he first appeared to them, they were probably, whoa, what is this? And his first words are, peace be with you. Because whenever someone is in the presence of God in the scriptures, God always has to say, don't be afraid. And let me give you some peace. This is the probably the Hebrew greeting, shalom, he gave to them. And of course, they would be afraid. What, afraid. what would you think? What would you, how would you respond? You're afraid that you're going to come, someone's going to come and arrest you and the person that you know died? Even though they had been talking about this probably for the last, I don't know how many hours, they still are not convinced and we're going to see that even in the next few weeks that they're not convinced. And what had they been talking about? Think about it. Mary came to the tomb somewhere around 6 or 6.30 in the morning first time that she ran off and then she came back and then she went and told the disciples conservatively all of that couldn't have taken more than two or three hours and john and peter had had come before that probably you know later than 7 a.m to tell the disciples that this is what we saw the the tomb is empty and we know that the other um other women had come to the to the men as well so they have been, since this is in the evening, somewhere between 6 and 8 o'clock at night, we're not sure exactly, 6 to 10 hours, they've been waiting all day long. What has been the topic of their discussion? What Peter and John said, what Mary reported, what the other ladies reported, what are they going to do? What does it all mean? What does this mean when Mary said uh, that Jesus told her to tell us, I ascend to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean when the other women came and they said, uh, you need to go to Galilee and wait for him them there, there? Are they going? No, they're just stuck. They're afraid. But John's emphasis makes it clear that they are fearful. And Jesus comes and says, peace be unto you. So Jesus came and stood in their midst. They've been talking about this. They still don't understand it. Otherwise, they probably would have just gone out the door and headed for Galilee. But this miracle has occurred, and Jesus knows they need peace because they lack peace. You know, he had consoled them before, and they should have enough teaching already to understand how they should respond. Remember in chapter 14, he said, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. He said, I'm going away. So don't, you don't have to worry. I'm going to prepare a place for you. This isn't the, the ultimate going away yet, the ascension into heaven. But he's going to prepare a place for them in heaven so they should not fear. They don't need to be afraid. He also said in John 14:27, as you'll see, he said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives you do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. He taught them that. 
specifically. And in 1633, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. He gives them this verbal comfort. They should know this. They should respond to it, but somehow they've forgotten. Have you ever forget the, the promises God gives to you? So he gives them verbal comfort, but then he gives them physical proof in verse 20. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. His hands, as you know, he was nailed to the cross. We know the story of the, the soldier, who, soldier who pierced his side with a spear and out came water and blood. They knew all this. And he shows them. And they probably came and said, let me see. They probably handled him. And they looked at it and they were convinced because look at their response. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. They recognized it was him. This is the Lord. This is him. He is alive. This is his real physical body. Obviously, it is because we see the, the nail prints in his hands. We see the, the, the scar in his side. This is him. This was the physical proof of a physical resurrection without which there is no gospel, without which there is no redemption for us. And we would still be in our sins if this were not true. He really rose. And they are convinced at this moment. Not only are they convinced, how, what is their response? They rejoice. Well, who wouldn't? He's alive. It's all true. Everything that he said is coming true, including this, that they would rejoice, John 16, 19. Remember this, he said to, the, to his disciples, are you deliberating, deliberating together about this? That I said a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament and they've been doing that. But the world will rejoice and the world has been rejoicing that he was dead. You will grieve. They have been grieving. But your grief will be turned into joy. And so it has. At this moment, just as it was for Mary when, she, when he called her name. John 16, 22. Therefore, you too have grief now. They have had that. But I will see you again. And indeed he is. And your heart will rejoice. And indeed it is. And no one will take your joy away from you. His promises are ours, folks. They're ours as well. Which leads us to a couple of lessons. We are to fear God and we are not to fear man. That, that truth, that lesson is found throughout the scriptures over and over and over again. Why were they fearing? Well, they had reason to be afraid at some level, did they not? Because the, the religious leaders not just in the last week, but over the period of the last three years, they had acquitted themselves as conniving and dishonest and proud and bloodthirsty and murderous and always hypocritically hiding behind the small details of the law to excuse and cover up their own sin. They were evil men and the disciples were truly in danger. So what do we do if we're truly in danger? Like International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted. We saw some have died recently for their faith. Psalm 5611, this is what we do. In God I have, I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? What are you going to do? Kill me? So what? Right? That has been... The attitude of believing martyrs throughout all of church history, I will stand firm, I cannot, I will not recant my faith in the living, risen Lord because he is alive and it is all true. So you can't kill me, I can't kill the flesh, but I will live again. If you believe in him, even though you die, you will live again. And the same promises given to the disciples are ours as well. 
peace I leave with you, Jesus says. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives. Do not let your heart be troubled and do not be fearful. How many times have you read through the Bible and seen that phrase, do not fear, do not fear, do not fear, do not fear. It is found throughout the scriptures. And I don't know why you fear. I don't know why I'm afraid sometimes. Sometimes we bite our tongue. We're afraid of what people might think. We're afraid of what might be going on in our country. And maybe things are moving toward real uh, persecution for us. I don't know. But the answer to that is we do not fear. We fear God. The only one we're to fear is God. The one who is able to send someone to hell, not someone who can take our life. Because he is our Savior. Second lesson, the presence of the risen Lord replaces fear. And there's this exchange between fear and what is given to us is peace and joy. See, that's what this says, isn't it? They were fearful. He stands in their presence, the risen Lord. He gives them peace. He gives them proof. And their response is joy. So for us, because the presence of the risen Lord is with you. He is with us, is he not? Yes, he is. He is with us. And this truth of who he is, that he has risen, that he has come to dwell in us and amongst us, it should dispel fear, it should bring peace, and it should bring rejoicing. It should. The disciples had all of this teaching to draw upon. But they're rattled, aren't they? What are they rattled by? Circumstances. That's the way it always is. That's not the way I thought it was going to go. I thought it was going to be different. I thought there's going to be more victory and more joy. It's not always that way. And the same happens to us. We have our faith thrown out of balance. We're walking along and everything's going fine and something comes out of, out of left field and it knocks us off. And we forget to whom we belong. We forget his his promises. We forget his, pre- pre- his, his presence. We doubt that. We know the truth, but when it comes time to apply it, it's easy to be theoretical, but it's harder to be practical, isn't it? It's easy to quote the verses. It's easy to be theological, but our theology must always result in faithful obedience and trust. That's the purpose of theology. And this is theology. Jesus died for our sins and he rose from the dead. He is, it really happened. He redeemed us of our sins and he will never leave us and never forsake us. And he promises peace. It's theologically true. And it should also result in our trust. So we have to rehearse that truth over and over and over and over again in our minds. So. The risen Lord dispels our fear. And now we see the second portion of the passage, 21 through 23. The risen Lord directs our mission. He has a mission for us that he commands to us. He defines it. He orders. This is our marching orders. We see this in verses 21 through 23. All of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and even the book of Acts, have commissions where Jesus commissions his disciples to what is next. It is the commission. We often refer to the Great Commission in Matthew 28, and of course it is important, but it's not the only one. In every one of the Gospels, he directs his disciples as to what is next, and he prepares them for what is lying ahead. And so the fact that he um, he repeats it in all four of the Gospels and in the book of Acts tells us that over the period of 40 days to those 500 people, he repeated this thing probably many, many times because it's spoken in different ways. And this is John's version. It's not his version, but this is what Jesus said at this particular moment. He said the other commissions at different times, but this is what John records for us. These are the marching orders to the disciples in the book of John. This is his charge to them. We see it in verse 21, where we are commissioned 
to represent him. We have been commanded, we've been called, we have been charged with representing him in the world. He has gone away. He's coming back, but in the meantime, we are here to represent him. And so for the disciples, right, at this particular moment, he is going away and he's saying to them, when I leave, you are to represent me. Verse 21, so Jesus said to them again, peace be with you, shalom. He says it again. He, this, he picks up where he left off. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Notice the beautiful symmetry of this. As the Father has sent me, so also I send you. Very simple. Very simple. The question then is, the second part is, okay, he sent us. We want to get on with that. But we, need, we know what we're supposed to do by paying attention to the first part of the, of the statement, which is, as the Father has sent me. And how has the Father sent Jesus? It's the book of John, isn't it? You just look through the book of John, you know what the mission of Jesus was. I went through and, and this week, and I looked at and you might do this too, and take it a concordance and look at it. All the, the, the times that Jesus spoke of the Father, and over and over and over and over again, he said, the Father has sent me. I don't come on my own initiative. All that I speak, I speak what the Father has taught me. It is it's not my words. They're his words. They're not my works. They're his works. I love as he loved. You're to love as I loved. On and on and on it goes. I bring glory to the Father. We are to bring glory, glory to the Father, etc., etc., etc. All of those things in John's gospel, Jesus has very clearly said, it's the Father who sent me. I haven't come here on my own. Everything that I say, everything that I do is to please him and to fulfill the mission of bringing glory to his name. That's our mission. Same mission. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. He came to glorify the Father by completing the mission, and he hands us the baton. He says, okay, go and do what I did. Do what I did. Notice that it is present tense here. I send you. It's the same in which he said, I ascend to the Father, my Father, your God, He's not really ascending right then, but it's it's speaking as it's going to happen. It's imminent. He is not really sending them at this moment because we know they're not going to go anywhere yet. So the same can be said of this statement. It's not at this very minute because there's going to be a formal inauguration of the sending, which will be on the day of Pentecost. And his mission has always included us. It was never plan B. Well, he didn't finish everything he was supposed to do, so he decided to include us in a new mission. No, we are plan A. He is plan A, and he's always included us in it. The lesson for us is this. We represent the risen Lord in the world. Very simple. In what we say, in what we do, how we live, how we interact, act with people, how we spend our money, how we vote, how we serve one another, how we love, what we speak, what we preach. He sends us in the same manner, with the same mission, with the same authority, and the same source for the same purpose, his glory. Let me say that again. He sends us in the same manner, with the same mission, with the same authority, from the same source, for the same purpose, his glory. That's what he sends us to do. All that was true of him and all that he did, he says, you go do it now, and he's given that to us. So we are commissioned and commanded and charged with this idea of representing him In verse 22, we see that we are empowered to do so. We are empowered to follow him. We are empowered to obey the commission. 
We now have the wherewithal, just as he was promising it for them. Verses 22 and 23, you'll notice, are a bit difficult to understand, as is the scripture sometimes. Verse 22 says, and when he had said this, given them the mission, you're going to go and represent me as the Father sent me. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Literally, it just says he breathed, but it is almost a picture of uh, God breathing into Adam, that lump of clay, new life. And I think it is largely symbolic here when he says receive the Holy Spirit, because we know that they haven't really fully received the Holy Spirit yet. Just as the sending, he says, I send you, which was anticipating a future formal sending, so also the receiving of the Holy Spirit is anticipatory of a fuller receiving that will be fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. Because, here's the reason why, and we have to interpret this in light of other scripture. Luke 24:49. And behold, I am sending, present tense, Forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. That's what he told the disciples. The resurrected Lord told the disciples, wait. Wait until the Holy Spirit comes. I'm sending, yes, present tense, but not right this very moment. So in the meantime, wait until it happens. And we also have to align this with Jesus' previous teaching in the book of John, which is very clear, John 7, 37, the following. Remember this. Now, on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. That great invitation to come and believe and drink of the, the water that is without cost and the, the water that gives life of the Holy Spirit. Notice verse 39, though. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were yet to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given. Why? Because Jesus was not yet glorified. So in John 20, 22, when Jesus says, receive the Holy Spirit, he is not yet glorified. He is still on the earth those 40 days, and so the fullness of the giving of the Holy Spirit has not yet come. I know it is a little bit difficult to understand. I was reading uh, commentators this week, and D.A. Carson has page after page after page going on through all these reasons. He finally arrives at the conclusion, um, this is kind of a parable acting out in symbolic way of what's going to happen and John MacArthur just said, this is symbolic. That's all he said. <laughs> you know, he didn't take 10 pages to, to, to develop it. And that's largely where we arrive. When he says, he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. It is basically symbolic of what is coming. It is a precursor of the coming of the Holy Spirit. It's a, it, these are a preview of coming attractions. They're the greatest uh, coming the dis- display of the Holy Spirit. So, and we know this, that here's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And this is not exhaustive. I'm going to put these up. It's not exhaustive. There are many, many more. But the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to impart the new birth. Remember John 3, Jesus meeting with Nicodemus, and he says to him, unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. So everyone who believes in Christ is born again. There is no such thing as a a Christian who was not born again. That is how we become a Christian. We are born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what the Spirit does. He imparts the new birth. 1 Corinthians 15.45 says this, it is, So it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living soul when God breathed into him. The last Adam, who is Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. He breathes into us the new life of the Spirit. So once again, we see the resurrected Christ reversing the curse of Adam 
because we become new creations in Christ. To impart the new birth, to give gift individuals, to build up the body of Christ. Ephesians 4, the Spirit comes and gives every one of you a specific ability, a spiritual gift to minister to one another, to bring glory to God. To empower, to fulfill the Great Commission, Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be my witnesses, to fulfill the Great Commission, to reveal the truth. You will recall this in John 14.26 and 16.13. Jesus promised the coming of the Spirit. He's going to guide you into all truth and to reveal and glorify Christ. John 14, 16, 14, etc. When Christ is seen, when Christ is worshipped, when he is obeyed, when he is glorified, guess who has done that? It is the Holy Spirit of God who has worked in our midst through the word of God to bring about a knowledge of the Son of God and to glorify him. It is the work of the Spirit. So whether this act is symbolic or they're given some token of the Spirit at this time, the effect is the same for us. We have the Spirit in fullness, and that's the lesson. We're fully equipped, excuse me, we are fully equipped and we are fully empowered to complete the mission that he gave us. We have all that we need pertaining to life and godliness. We have the fullness of the Spirit. We who are post-Pentecost have been given the fullness of the Holy Spirit. That's all that there is given and sent by Jesus, symbolized in him breathing on his disciples for the purpose of empowering us to the mission with which we have been commissioned. And the mission is this, the proclamation of the gospel. And that's what comes next. Verse 23, we are responsible to proclaim him. We've been commanded. We have been commissioned. We have been charged to proclaim him. To proclaim him is to proclaim the gospel. And that is our responsibility. He said, go and do what I did. What did he do? He preached the gospel. He lived the gospel. We have the same power. And he gave us that power through the Holy Spirit. And this is this defines the mission. It is the proclamation of the gospel. Again, verse 23 is a bit hard to understand But I think if we see it in context, you'll understand. He says, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Notice again, you have a a sentence in symmetry here. But in this case, they contrast each other. If you forgive the sins of any, and any is plural here, not any specific one person. They are forgiven. If you retain the sins... Of any, again, not any one person, it's plural. And that's if that happens. This is, this is what could happen. They have been retained. This is the mission, to proclaim the message of the gospel. One, states, one side of the statement states the positive of the gospel for those who believe. They're forgiven. And the other states the negative side of the gospel for those who don't believe. Their sins remain. The scriptures teach that throughout all of the Bible. What this does not mean, and we, here, what, here is what hermeneutics are all about. Hermeneutics is that science of understanding and, and uh, interpreting the scriptures. And one of the, the simple principles of hermeneutics, you always need to remember, is that we interpret that which is unclear by that which is clear. And that which is very, very clear is that we are saved by grace through faith. It's taught throughout the scriptures. So what this does not mean, as some have interpreted this, is that he is talking to the apostles, and he has handed down through apostolic succession the ability for them to forgive people on behalf of God. Can you do that? Is, do you think that really that's what that means? That you have been given the ability to, to declare that someone is saved? That that power comes from you in some sense, that you grant absolution for someone's sin because Jesus said this. Here's the reason we know this is not true. No one can forgive sin but God alone. 
no one. Mark 2, you know the story of the man who was let down from the roof, the paralytic, and they let him down. And Jesus healed him, and he said, your sins are forgiven. And everybody was aghast. Why? They said, oh, no, no one can forgive sins but God alone. That's right. (laughs) He is God. He alone can forgive sins. He is the only one who can. Exodus 34, 7 is that wonderful story when, when Moses is on the mount on the mountain and God comes before him and passes before him and says, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. That phrase is, I, I, it's amazing to me, I underline these in my Bible when I read through, how many times this phrase is repeated in the, Old, in the Old Testament over and over and over again. And there are many other passages that talk about God is the one who forgives sins. I can't declare that a person is going to heaven and grant them forgiveness. No one can do that. God is the only one who can forgive the sins of others. Now, if, if my wife and I get into a conversation that is heated and I need to forgive her, she needs to forgive me, that's a personal level, but that's not eternal. That's not salvation. None of us have that ability to do that. The issue is always sin and repentance. Or as Jesus said, sending the Spirit, he will come and he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And the condition of forgiveness in John is always belief. You have to take all of John's gospel. And again, I invite you to take a concordance and look up the word believe. Ninety-eight times the word believe or some form of it. That's the condition of forgiveness. A personal faith in Jesus Christ. We have to remember that all that Jesus has said about belief and believing in him throughout the gospel, and though the words believe and faith are not employed by Jesus here, they are certainly implied when we read it, let the reader understand. Having read the entire gospel of John, of course, it's implied here that one must believe. Forgiveness of sins is always linked to faith in him. There is no other way. The positive side of the gospel for those who believe, they're forgiven. The negative side of the gospel for those who disbelieve, their sins remain. That's what he's saying. The original grammar as such says when you forgive someone, their sins have already been forgiven. That's what he says. Their sins have already been forgiven. It's it's similar to baptism, I think. I I even wonder whether this is what he's referring to in some sense. Because when when someone is baptized, they come and they they stand before the congregation and they they give the good confession. They give their testimony of faith. And then they are baptized in water. Do the waters of baptism give them eternal life? No, it is demonstrating, demonstrating that they have been forgiven. And so when we baptize someone, we are, we are declaring, declaring, your sins have been forgiven based upon your faith. Or, as D.A. Carson puts it, they are in a state of forgiveness, which I think is correct because throughout all of John's gospel, he uses the, to get grammatically, grammatical here, he uses the present participle of believe, those who are believing in me. It's not just a one-time act of faith. Those who are believing in me, he uses that over and over and over again. But if you disbelieve, you stand unforgiven. The gospel is good news, isn't it? Isn't that the good news? We bring good news. God loves you. He sent his son to die for you. Believe in him and you'll have eternal life. But what if someone says, but what if I don't believe? Then you don't have eternal life, nor will you. And you will not go to heaven. You will be judged for your sin. We cannot hide the other side of the gospel from people. We cannot just give the good news because part of the good news is the bad news, that we're all sinners. And the bad news is because we're sinners, we have no no hope in heaven and we are dead in our transgressions and sins. And, And 
The Holy Spirit convicts of sin and righteousness and judgment. And if you don't believe, there is judgment. That's the other side of the gospel. When we proclaim the gospel, we announce good news that there is forgiveness to those who believe. But we also warn that those who reject Christ will remain in their sins and be judged for them. We don't decide that. We don't decide that that person is forgiven. We just proclaim the truth of what Jesus has said here. But we don't take lightly that when we proclaim the gospel and people reject it, we're in a sense participating in a pronouncement of judgment upon them. We're not judging them. We're only proclaiming what Jesus says is true. A couple of lessons at the end here. There are only two responses to the gospel, which means there are only two types of people. Either you believe or you disbelieve, and that determines whether you're saved or unsaved, whether you will enjoy life in heaven with him forever or you will be judged. Remember what Jesus said back in, in, I think it was John chapter 5, about the resurrection? And we, we tend to forget this. All people will be raised from the dead, everyone, believers and unbelievers. Some to everlasting judgment and some to everlasting life. That's the two sides of the proclamation of the gospel. The next lesson is this. The gospel is too edged two-edged it, it cuts two ways in other words declaring forgiveness to those who believe but it also declares judgment to those who disbelieve second corinthians two fourteen. thanks be to god who also always leads us in triumph in christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. We take with us that representation of Christ through the Spirit, and it's a fragrance. But there are two responses. It smells different to different people depending upon which side of this they are on. To the one, an aroma from death to death, stench of death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? I am not, and you are not. We're just the messengers. But when we announce the message of the gospel, it cuts two ways. And it gives life, but it also brings judgment. Thus, we know what's at stake, right, with the gospel and how important it is that we go out and we proclaim it in the world and we represent Christ adequately. So in conclusion, you don't have to write this down, but we have been given a solemn task. It is solemn. It is also joyful of proclaiming to the world by the power of the Spirit that the sins of those who believe in Christ are forgiven and the sins of those who disbelieve remain unforgiven. That's our message. Because we've been given the marching orders. Because he gave us his spirit and he commissioned us to this truth. I would like you to take your bread and your cup and see how this is illustrated in communion. Because the bread and the cup do not impart eternal life. We cannot say to you, by taking this cup, I declare that you have your sins forgiven. It's not what this is all about. If you have confessed Christ as Savior, if you have believed in him, that every time you partake of the bread and the cup, you are saying, I stand in forgiveness. My sins have been forgiven. And we we declare this through the, the cup and through the bread, that our sins are forgiven because of our faith in Christ. So if you are here this morning and you have trusted in Christ as your Savior, If, as in those 98 times in the book of John, you have come to that place where you have recognized that he is the Son of God, that he has taken away the sins of the world as the Lamb of God, that he has indeed risen from the dead, 
and you have placed your hope and your trust in him and him alone, we invite you to the table. If you're not sure about that, or if you don't believe that, wait until such a time that you do. Because we cannot say to you, by partaking of this bread and cup, your sins will be forgiven. We partake of this bread and this cup because our sins are forgiven. Amen. Thank you, Father, for this bread which represents to us the risen Lord, a body pierced, but a body renewed and now glorified in heaven. Son of God who came to be one of us, tempted in all things and yet without sin. We are grateful and it is with great joy that we come and we we declare our sins forgiven in him. We stand in forgiveness. And we thank you for this cup for it represents to us his life which is more than precious. Eternal life given because we drink of the one who stood up on that day and said those who believe in him from Inside of us will flow rivers of living water because you've imparted to us the Holy Spirit. And so we thank you that his, his blood was shed to take away our sin and there is nothing else that can do that. And so we declare his death. And so by declaring, we declare our sins are forgiven because you have done it. We pray for those who are still in their sins this morning that they might in faith turn to you and believe, and have eternal life. Amen. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift and God's people said.